Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody, my name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Isaac Butler, the author of The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, which uh, is a superb history of the most significant movement in acting, both theatre and film, uh, of the 20th century, and the effect of which we are living with, for good and for bad, even today. Um, so in order to prepare for this podcast, I have, of course, been completely immersed in my role. I've researched podcaster uh, for hours. I've gone into great detail. I've done some exercises. I have my effective memory intensely felt, and I shall be reproducing them throughout the podcast, much to Isaac's irritation. If you enjoy the podcast, please remember to like and share wherever you can. Um, on social media and elsewhere. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, enjoy the conversation. You know, certain ideas going into it, some of which turned out to be true. But, you know, the, the key thing, which, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I imagine you're asking about here, has to do with the definition of what the 
method actually is and and how it works and stuff like that. And I guess I sort of thought that the various ideas of, of, of what it was were sort of um, more compatible <laughs> than they turned out to be. That's probably the easiest way to say it. But absolutely, because it's the thing that, I, that sort of struck me was that it's, I was expecting there to be various strands and various you know, yeah. potentially conflicting schools of thought and interpretations. But they're kind of mutually exclusive. There are some real arguments in there which are, you know, that's the absolute wrong thing to do. I mean, they all have their roots in Stanislavski. Yes. They all have their roots in his techniques. They all have their roots in this idea of the Russian word is parajivanya, which um, in English roughly translates to experiencing or re-experiencing. It's like, you know, we want to see the actor kind of going through what the character is going through in a controlled way in real time. So, so a lot of the end goals are the same, but it is sort of like the various people who teach Stanislavski's techniques in the United States broke off a chunk of his teachings and then ran with them as far as they could possibly go. And so there's a lot of really stark differences there. There are some people who, you know, studied with both Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler, or Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler and Sanford Meisner, or some combination of them and kind of worked those techniques together and synthesized them into something themselves. But to hear the the various teachers talk about it, it was pretty mutual. They thought it was pretty mutually exclusive. And, and when you start with Stanislavski, even he, as he goes through his career, I mean, obviously he's developing because he's, he's working it out as he goes along. But some of those changes, again, are really quite major. Yeah, yes, absolutely. I mean, Stanislavski, so he was open-minded almost to a fault, I think, in some ways. Um, far more open-minded than I am anyway. Um, and, you know, he was someone who was really interested in experimenting and he never wanted his ideas or his techniques to become a fixed, codified, dogmatic thing. So in fact, you know, he didn't call it the method, he called it the system. But uh, when he called it the system, it was in quotation marks and all in lowercase, because he wanted to emphasize that it was never fixed. So, you know, he did change his mind a lot or evolve on a bunch of things, but I, I think it's kind of a mistake personally anyway, to say like, ah, yes, 1937 Stanislavski, that's right and 1916 is wrong or whatever. I mean, he was constantly evolving and sometimes going back to things he had believed earlier. The only reason why the system stopped developing is because he died. If he had lived to be 150 years old, I'm sure his he would have evolved in his thinking of it again and again and again. So, you know, to me, it's less about one is right and one is wrong as you get all these different angles of attack into the same idea, which is, again, how do we get to the actor being able to experience the character on demand when they have to, you know, which is a challenge for any artist and in such a way that the audience can perceive what they're doing. I mean, I, I've, I've heard, again, it's one of those big names you hear all the yeah. time and you think you know what it is, but um, it was really interesting to read and you went into it in, in great depth. I really enjoyed sort of going deeply into it and seeing but he, uh, the impression I sort of got was that he was a director who didn't ever want to stop rehearsing. And it was like, um, it, you, kind of, if you'd taken the performance out of the equation, he would have been like, oh, brilliant. That's even, that's the best. 
I mean, that's a really great way of putting it. I wish I had been, I wish I had had that as a sentence in the book, but um, I'm glad that you came away with that feeling because yeah, you know, both of his landmark first, both of his landmark productions in the first season of the Moscow Theater, he tries to push off the opening as late as possible. And it's his partner, Vladimir uh, Nemirovich Donchenko, who's like, F you, we got to get this show on the road. We're running out of money. And then um, once he starts developing the system, which is a few years later in 1906, the Moscow Art Theater is founded in 1898. You know, a few years later when he's working on the system, his rehearsal processes just get longer and longer and longer. I mean, there's a part where, you know, if you're reading in a book, oh, then they rehearsed it 180 times. And you're like, wait a second, 180 times? That's like, that's most of a year, at least, you know? And then his production of Hamlet rehearses for three whole years before <laughs> they put it on. You know, I mean, it, you're absolutely right that he became more and more hesitant to actually put the plays on. And I think some of that was, I think there's two things going on at once that kind of created that dynamic in Stanislavski. One is, is that he's this relentless experimentalist and so you know he's using his rehearsals to test out his theories and so he just wants to keep that laboratory going as much as possible and test things out and throw them out but the problem is he's also a relentless perfectionist right and so he doesn't really want anyone to see it because he keeps going like oh it's not ready it's not as good as it could be and in a weird way if he could only have done one or the other with a production he probably would have been better off but at every point he's trying to do both of those things at once yeah it's almost perfect then let's change everything and then let's wait yeah. until that's perfect in fact, in fact, Nemirovich writes him a letter at one point where he's like, you have to stop throwing all your blocking out in the middle of rehearsal because Stanislavski would stage it and then he'd watch a run through. Can we swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, okay, great. So he would watch, you know, he would, he would uh, stage the whole thing and then he'd watch a run through and he'd be like, this is horseshit. And then he'd restage the whole thing. And Nemirovich writes him a letter where he's like, your actors and assistants this is making them nervous. Like they don't know what to do because they never know when you're going to settle on something. And so you're absolutely right. You know, he just, he just couldn't stop himself. And yet he produced sort of some great successes. I mean, his, uh, I mean, one of the biggest successes, I think sort of like you, you could say to his contribution to the culture alongside the method is kind of understanding Chekhov and, and directing Chekhov so that Chekhov you know, suddenly became famous as a dramatist, whereas he'd already been introduced to the theater and he'd he, he sort of flopped. <laughs> Not only flopped, I mean, he he was responsible for the, the you know, Tommy Wiseau's The Room of Russian theater. You know, I mean, it was kind of, it was one of those, like you had to be there at this all-time disaster. And the craziest thing is that all-time disaster was The Seagull, one of the greatest plays <laughs> ever written right so yeah. you know yes uh Chekhov is an incredibly highly regarded writer of fiction at that time but he's considered not a good playwright and part and it's really that almost no one understands what he's trying to do with these scripts so and it's also that Russian theatrical practice at the time so how the plays are produced and put on is diametrically opposed to what he needs for his work so you know, uh, before the Moscow Art Theater came around, the, uh, the longest a play was rehearsed in Russia usually was nine times. Mm. The actors would rehearse 
the plays and figure out their interpretations of their roles on their own. You know, they would, they would come in with an idea of what the part was, and then a stage manager would kind of stage it. There weren't really directors. And then they perform it in front of like a stock set. So you would literally have a set in storage that's like a summer manor, and you would pull it out, you know, the emperor's yeah. palace, and you pull it out. And so um, if you've ever read Chekhov, you just know that's not going to work for his play. So the original production of The Seagull was um, such a flop that uh, by the end of it, the audience was like booing and shouting at the stage and Chekhov ran out into the cold St. Petersburg night and spent the night wandering the streets. And it, you know, he already had tuberculosis and it negatively affected his health and probably shortened his lifespan and yon and on and on. <laughs> but Nemirovich Donchenko was good friends with Chekhov. I mean, they really loved him and he felt like he got the play and that no one else did. And so he convinced he sort of browbeat Chekhov into letting them do it because for obvious reasons, Chekhov didn't want them to do it. And then, you know, in the synergy or something, the symbiotic mind between Nemirovich Donchenko and Stanislavski, you know, together they came up with this really brilliant production. Nemirovich went to Stanislavski's, or Stanislavski and Nemirovich got together. Nemirovich took him line by line through the play and said, you know, this is how the play works. Nemirovich was one of the great critics of his day. And um, Stanislavski really took that and ran with it and came up with this production that was so important in Russian theater, although it falls out of their repertory a few years later, but that original production is so important in Russian theater and so important to the Moscow Art Theater itself that the Moscow Art Theater's logo is an abstracted seagull. Right, it's that, that brand. Yeah, and then um, Chekhov falls in love with one of their actors, Olga Knieper, and they get married. And he writes two plays for her. Three Sisters and Cherry Orchard are written with the Moscow Art Theater in mind and with Olga Knieper in mind to play one of those, those roles and for Stanislavski to direct them. Amazing, absolutely amazing sort of uh, symbiosis between Chekhov and the, yeah. the theater at that point, which easily, I mean, there are so many novelists who have tried their hands at theater, Henry James, Charles Dickens, and they and they never really and they never really got it, you know. Uh, Iris Murdoch, one of my favorite novelists, wrote a few plays that are not very good. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, there are two different skill sets. You know, in theater, all you've got is the spoken word. Mm. There's no interiority. Mm. You know, there's there's a lot of and, and everything happens in real time. It's very difficult to move time along in the same way. And so it's tough for novelists who have so many other tools at their disposal to figure out what to do with such a reduced toolkit. And um, it, it, lots of writers will tell you that playwriting is the hardest kind of writing because of that. And certainly I think there's a number of novelists who found that really challenging. And so then we get the, the Moscow Art Theatre coming to America and sort of, uh, you know, inject. One thing I've always wondered about, I always wondered about this idea that, you know, you go and see a play in Russian and as a, as a non-Russian speaker, and you can sit there and appreciate the acting. And you you say they, they were buying little translations and reading them before the before the performance. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a little bit like going to see opera with mm. no super titles. I mean, that's actually, you know, like if you went to go see the opera and you were at a place that didn't have super titles or pre-super titles, you know, you would read a summary of the show in the program, and then you just kind of watch it and try to understand what was going on. You might read the libretto beforehand. It, it's kind of similar to that. They did publish 
the scripts in English to, I mean, some of them had already been published. Like, you know, you could already go out and buy Uncle Vanya if you wanted to. But, um, you know, one of their most famous productions was this play called Tsar Fyodor Ivanovich, which I've actually read because that English translation that was published when the Moscow Art Theater came, you know, there's a, a PDF of that, of a scanned book of it online. So I've actually read, the, I've read the play, you know. So uh, yeah, if you really wanted to know what was going on, you had to read the scripts in advance. Does that mean, do you think that the way they appreciated the acting might have changed though? They may have been more attentive to sort of mannerisms and expressions rather than, you know, just following the plot or listening to them. Yeah, well, I mean, how are you going to get meaning? I think mm-hmm. is what that 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 question raises for me. How are you going to be able to, uh, if you can't understand word for word going on, understand emotionally what's going on with the relationships are between the characters? And yes, you would have to pay a lot closer attention to what the actors are doing in order for that to make sense. And, you know, one of the things that people are marveling at at that time is how every actor in the ensemble seems equally committed and seems to have as in-depth a characterization, regardless of the size of the part. And that was actually one of Stanislavski's big innovations with the Moscow Art Theater. He's the guy who coined, there are no small parts, only small actors. That's his aphorism. And you know, his whole thing was, you could play a spear carrier or you could play Hamlet, uh, but everyone, you know, has to have a really in-depth character. And um, he paired that with another of his innovations, which is the permanent ensemble. Their ensemble company was a permanent ensemble. They were full-time employees of the theater. They shared a vision of what the theater was going for artistically, or they were supposed to anyway. I mean, they fought about that all the time. And, um, uh, and they uh, trained together. You know, and so there was a real part of what was so groundbreaking about those productions was the unity of effect of them. Um, And that really was what blew people away. The fact that they fought about it just shows how committed they are. You know, I mean, I I can't imagine like modern day actors in, in sort of the movie TV land sort of fighting over what methodology they're using or what vision they have. It just, you know, it it seems to be a very sort of Russian turn of the century thing. Well, yeah, although then when we moved to the group theater in the 1930s here in the United States, which is where the method is really born, I mean, they're fighting with each other constantly. They're screaming at each other. Harold Klerman, who was one of the artistic directors of the group, would throw chairs at people when he disagreed with them. And then they'd laugh it off and get drunk or whatever. I mean, part of it is also, I think it's an era, both in Moscow and in New York, where people are far more comfortable with conflict than they are today. I certainly wouldn't be able to do great work under those conditions. I, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that they were right. I'm just saying that culturally, there was a lot more tolerance for conflict, for argument, for rage. You know, um, I mean, these people fought a lot. And some of them would, it's not that they then always got along at the end of it. I mean, there are arguments from the Moscow Art Theater that, that people are holding grudges about till the day they die. The same is true in the group. But it is that, you know, they seem to believe that art was worth something having these heated arguments about and that it was okay to just scream at someone if you really passionately believed about something. I mean, like, I don't believe that. 
that's not how I'm raising my child. <laughs> you know, we, we say, don't do that, in fact. But uh, I think it's a really big difference in terms of, um, it's almost like a paradigm shift about how conflict works, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how you can express that sort of passion. And you're right, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, wrong to romanticize it too much because, yeah. you know, a lot of bullying is done under that under that sort of pretense of passion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Stanislavski, for example, even though everyone loved him and everyone talks about how charming he was. And I mean, he was really friends with everybody, you know, he could be a tyrant in the rehearsal room. And sometimes he would joke about that. Like in his memoir, he sort of is very self-deprecating about it. He clearly knows that he probably shouldn't have been so um, strict or strong-armed or whatever. But, but you know, if you read the act, the memoirs of the actors who worked with him, particularly a couple of the actresses, you know, they didn't always appreciate it. They didn't always appreciate him yelling at them and then making fun of how they acted in front of the rest of the cast, which was something he would do if he was really angry at someone. And it absolutely was all done under this kind of umbrella of believing that the theater was sacred. Stanislavski really believed that the theater was sacred so that if you did anything less than your best, it wasn't just you were having a bad day at work or you weren't being a great employee or whatever. I mean, it was almost sacrilegious to him and he would treat it like that. And that's a really... um different way of thinking about art than we do today and it's hard to kind of wrap your brain around you can see how that would provide a lot of openings for abuse i think again he was very charming and so i think that's one reason why people didn't you know went along with it and another is that he was harder on no one more than he was on himself he's usually acting in these productions as well and he is absolutely brutal to himself and his own work at the same time and so i think there was at least some people, you know, a sense of we're all in this together. Look, he's look at how he treats himself. You know, we're all we're all trying to do this thing, but it sounds exhausting to me. Yeah, and there's sort of one bit where he, doesn't he give up sort of acting anything other than repertory roles because he's just like um, I'm not as, I'm not good enough anymore. Yeah, that's in this play called uh, I have a lot of trouble pronouncing it, um, so I'm probably going to get it wrong. You Dostoevsky fans, please do not uh, do not <laughs> write me angry letters. The village of Stepanachikova. He's um, playing a part in that play it's it's a very funny illustration of the limitations of the system so this is a play that is adapted from a Dostoevsky short story and um Nemirovich is directing it and uh Nemirovich wrote the adaptation and so Stanislavski though is like well we have to discover who this character I'm playing is and Nemirovich is like we do not have to discover him because Dostoevsky already described him in the story and I wrote the adaptation so there's nothing to just do what it says, you know, just like, this is what it says this character is like, you have to be like that. And he's like, no, but he's more complicated than that. And, you know, they ended up getting into these big fights about it. And then um, he works on it for months and months and months and he just can't crack the part. A number of other things happen at the same time. There's, um, you know, he has all these side theater companies and there's some crises in those, his best friend dies, you know, all this other stuff. And they do a dress rehearsal and he sort of has a nervous breakdown during the dress rehearsal. He can't remember his lines. He's just standing on stage weeping because he can't figure out what to do. And then um, Nemirovich sort of does the merciful thing and fires him from the show because they have to get the show up. And he's like, I'm sorry, you you know, we're, we're firing you. And Stanislavski was so, I don't know, heartbroken, mortified, whatever it was, that he never played a new role again. He only did his repertory roles. And then eventually his health made it so bad that he didn't even do those. I mean, in a way that's kind of indication and we could sort of zip forward uh, to the movies as well here, where 
the method and the and the system i know they're not the same thing so we can we can separate them in a bit but they they do sort of foreground certain traits and so uh, some roles are much more adapted for so they they foreground emotionality intensity complexity and depth whereas some things are kind of superficial and some things are simple and some things aren't necessarily emotional so i uh, i think it's an example you bring up of robert de niro working on a mike nichols picture which is supposed to be just funny and he's saying well why is the house yellow and it's like well it's just because it's yellow you know it's a comedy don't overthink it yeah absolutely and he gets fired from that uh film and the film is uh mike nichols never makes it it's made under a different name by someone else yeah that's a um i mean it's even funnier because it's neil simon (laughs) you know who's like one step removed from a borscht belt stand-up comic right? exactly. I mean, like, Mel Brooks film or something. Yeah. His and his jokes are very technical and very rhythmic. I mean, that's part of what makes Neil Simon work is that the jokes have to be delivered in a certain way with a certain timing. And you know, a good Neil Simon, you know, you go back and watch the odd couple, right? Like it's very as, as um sort of norm core as the odd couple is, you can see like those jokes work and they work because they're technically bulletproof. And um Robert De Niro who at that point, you know, by the time De Niro was doing that film, which was called uh, Bogart Slept Here, and was, uh, um, uh, by the time he's doing Bogart Slept Here, you know, De Niro, he's coming right off of Taxi Driver. I mean, that's the era we're talking about, right? Mm. So De Niro's preparatory process takes months usually. He is often rewriting the script himself, or he's bringing in bits that he's kind of figured out outside. So for example, in, in Taxi Driver, everyone's favorite scene, the you talking to me scene, you know, that was something that he had thought up outside. And actually, um, if you look at his shooting script, he has like a little, you know, margin note to himself right where it happens, where it says mirror thing here, question mark, <laughs> right? And so that's, a, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of thing he's doing. So you have to imagine putting that guy in a Neil Simon play I mean, I, I, what would the reverse of that be? That would be like, you know, casting Martin Short as Travis Bickle or something, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, like just the worst possible marriage of, um, you know, actor sensibility and subject matter. And so, yeah, he's trying to rewrite the jokes to make them make more psychological sense and stuff. And Mike Nichols and Neil Simon are like, no, you have to just, come on, you have to do this. And, and so eventually they fire him and the movie gets shelved. And it's kind of, I mean... The the way it sort of comes into the uh, in, into Hollywood, it, it's obviously it's coming via the theatre and Ilya Kazan and Malam Brando as well. But each time, this is where I was having revelation after revelation. Each time you pick up like an actor who I think, aha, yes, there's the major sort of proponent of the method there's a really good explanation for why really that's not true you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean yes, no, it's, I, it's what... I, I love john garfield as well getting a really good you know not getting uh he's so often the bridesmaid you know and never the bride but you give him a really good uh write-up in this i think Look, if you just wanted to talk about John Garfield for the rest of this podcast, I would be completely, we just have a John Garfield day. I love John Garfield. He basically became my favorite actor over the course of writing this book because, you know, I had to read a couple biographies of him and watch, I didn't watch all of his movies. Um, Some of them are hard to find now and some of them are terrible. Mm. Um, Have you ever seen They, They, They Made Me a Criminal? Yes, yes, I have, yes. Like that one, the Busby, the one that Busby Berkeley directed, that one is like, 
what were you doing? It, it guest star <laughs> the dead end kids are in it. You know, I mean, it's just couldn't be worse. Anyway, the um, but no, John Garfield is brilliant, and John Garfield actually is the first method movie star for a couple of reasons. One, Brando, and he even said this during his life, was not actually a method actor, and we can maybe put a pin in that for slightly after this. Um, but what Brando pioneered was really the method style. He was so influential that all of the actors who did call themselves method actors who traveled in his wake acted like him and wanted to be like him. So that's sort of how, you know, and because he was affiliated with the actor studio. But so Garfield actually is trained by Lee Strasberg, starts his career in 1938, much earlier. Mm. And so, you know, he really is, to me, the, the original method movie star. And without him, I don't know that we would have the whole other, other lineage we have. But even if that weren't true, I mean, he's so effing great. He is so good in everything. And he made a number of movies that I think are stone classics. Oh, yeah. I, I, Force of Evil is so, is, is wonderful. And of course, um, The Postman uh, always rings twice. It's, it's yeah. Force of Evil, Body and Soul. Body and Soul, yeah. Postman always rings twice. Humoresque, I would go to bat for Humoresque uh, with Joan Crawford. Um, and his last two movies, The Breaking Point and He Ran All the Way are, I mean, stunning. Those two movies mm. are incredible. And of course, Gentleman's Agreement, as Hollywood um, social conscience movies go, Gentleman's Agreement is pretty good. You know, like that's not a that's not a particularly rewarding genre, but uh, you know he does good work in that, and it's one of the few movies where he's explicitly a Jew. Mm, mm, you know, yeah. which, you know, given that he had to change his name from Julius Garfinkel and all that stuff, I think it's great that he has this one movie where he's a allowed to actually be a you know a sexy tough Jew. I I've just watched the life of Emil Zola, and it's kind of hilarious how that film portrays the Dreyfus affair in its entirety and doesn't want mention the word Jew or anti-Semite or anything. It's just like, he's, they don't like his mustache or something. I'm not sure quite why they're picking on him. And it's so bizarre because of course, you know, the, I mean, when you think about how many Jews there are in the, oh, well, in it's, the a it's a Warner, it's a Warner Brothers picture. Yeah, so exactly, it's, exactly. So it's just it's hysterical in some level that people they just wouldn't go near that. They just wouldn't go near it. So we come to Marlon Brando as well. I, I mean, I guess I suppose at this point, it, it 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 let's make it clear what the method is at this stage, and sure. why Marlon Brando isn't necessarily a method act. Yeah. So welcome to you know, the the hell of trying to write this book in a careful <laughs> way. Um, so there's the group theater in the 1930s. That's where the method is born. It's a, the, the group is an ensemble theater out of which would come all of the, most of the great American acting teachers of the 20th century. Clifford Odets, the greatest left-wing writer of the 30s. Harold Klerman, the great critic and director. Aaliyah Kazan. John Garfield. I mean, it's bonkers how many people came out of this company. And part of, and the part of what's binding that company together is their adaptation and use of Stanislavski's system, which they call the method with a lowercase m. It doesn't mean it's not the method. It's hey, this is our method. They actually mean it in this very like low key systems, a little pompous. This is just hey, we have this method of working. So for a while, method just means any of the American adaptations of Stanislavski that come out of the group theater. And there's a bunch of schisms within the group theater. So um, there's a bunch of those different interpretations. The major teachers to come out of the group theater are Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, and Sanford Meisner. By the 
early 1950s. The method comes to have a capital letter M and, uh, and a the, and uh, it really only means what Lee Strasberg is teaching people and his version of Stanislavski's theories. And I'll try to do this as quickly as possible, but the Lee Strasberg version of those theories is deeply rooted in psychology and emotion. And it's sort of like, okay, so the actor is their own material, right? They're both the painter and the paint. So what Strasberg's trying to do is make sure your palette has as many colors on it as possible. So you're digging into yourself, really deep into yourself to create these colors and this idiosyncrasy and this sort of non-cliche, non-standard behavior. And it starts with a series of exercises that begin with learning how to properly relax your body, to how to recall physical sensations in such a way that you almost really feel them, to how to use uh, what's called the effective memory exercise, which is his most famous exercise that has to do with how to use um, past memories, often traumatic past memories, in order to um, sort of dial up the emotions connected to those memories on command and use them as an actor. There's a lot more to it in, than that, but those are the basics. Stella Adler's process is about scripted, careful textual analysis, really careful textual analysis. Like with a, you go through the text with a fine-tooth comb, it's about an intense amount of research. It's about learning the behaviors of the character. So if you have to iron shirts in the play, right? If you're a housewife ironing shirts in the play, like every housewife had to do in every play in the 1950s, you better actually really know how to do that so that it looks real. And imagination. She did not want the actors using themselves. She wanted them using their imagination research. And she got increasingly doctrinaire on that point as her career went on. And Sanford Meisner is all about being present in the moment with your scene partner, really. It's this radical idea of presence. The way to, his slogan was live truthfully under imaginary circumstances is to not worry that much about the circumstances and to just be really present and free in yourself and alive. That's what you have to bring and trust the rest of the production to do the rest of the production's job. So John Garfield, who came out of the group, worked with Lee Strasberg. Lee Strasberg was the, was the acting guru for the first half of the group's tenure. Um, eventually, Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg have a huge schism after she meets with Stanislavski in Paris and studies with him. And she comes home to the group and she says, Lee screwed this whole thing up. And Lee Strasberg leaves the group and uh, a bunch of people come out who follow sort of, who are more in line with Stella. Marlon Brando studied with Stella Adler, not with Lee Strasberg. And he greatly disliked Lee Strasberg on a personal and professional level. And so when Lee Strasberg took over the actor studio, uh, Marlon Brando sort of drifted away from it. But because he had been a member of the actor studio when it was founded a couple of years earlier in 1948, he's sort of always been associated with the method. It's very weird, but it's true. You know, he was a, he, he just wasn't, that wasn't his thing. And so when he's, I mean, one of the reasons that I, I think that somebody says in the book that you quote is that like Marlon Brando would just have been brilliant anyway. You know, he's, he, he's, he's sort of got, he's one of these unique people. It's almost yeah, Mar like Martin Balsam says that Marlon was Marlon, right? It's like, he just, he was a, he was an absolute whatever technique he was going to be given, he was going to be a genius. Someone once, it's not in the book because I couldn't find an attribution that I trusted. Maybe it was, but I think it's usually attributed to Shelley Winters, I think, that taking Brando to acting class was like taking a tiger to jungle class. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, he could have, you could have dropped him on the stage in the Victorian period or the Renaissance period, and I, th I think he would have worked it out, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, what Stella gave him that I think was really important was she believed in his intellect, which a lot of people had not done up till then because he was dyslexic and mumble-mouthed and could get shy interpersonally. And so, you know, she really educated him. She believed that actors had to be really well-educated. I mean, on an autodidact level, you know, you had to do deep research. And so she really, that's, she really brought that kind, those kinds of ideas that you could use your imagination and that you could respect your intellect and you could, you know, find your way into a role that way. They sort of adopted him at Stella Adler and Harold Clerman, who was at that point, her husband kind of adopted him. He dated their daughter. He would come to dinner at their house all the time. They would give him books to read. I mean, he was for a while a surrogate son almost. Mm. Yeah, there's a brilliant line about, uh, you know, we, we, lend, we loaned a lot of people books, but he read them all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just go, it goes exactly. through them. So a voracious yeah, yeah. appetite. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Marlon Brando had a lot of different voracious appetites, right? For food, for sex, for you know, um, for learning. Though, I mean, I, I really, I really think that's true. And 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 yet, there's a sort of like there's always a sense with Brando of him sort of never quite. I, it's 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 almost ridiculous to say he never reached his potential when he did so much great work. But there's always that sense, especially in the latter part of his career, that the, certainly the material deserted him. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things I think that happened there. Per, this, these are my own theories anyway, right? That So please disagree with me, I guess, is what I'm saying. I, I, I mean, part of it is I think he was so gifted that he actually had to kind of work to take it seriously enough. I don't know, like, you know... Um, I see this sometimes with students of mine who are super gifted. Like it just comes to them so easily. And then when they hit rough patches, they sort of don't know what to do. You know, I think that's part of it. Also, he just felt really conflicted about acting his whole life. He wanted originally to be a jazz drummer. He kept thinking about quitting the business to become a civil rights activist and other things like that. You know, he was really conflicted about it. He really hated Hollywood. And after the disaster of One-Eyed Jacks. After One-Eyed Jacks is taken away from him and edited without his permission, you you know all that stuff. All that stuff that happened with One-Eyed Jacks' directorial debut. I think that he really took a kind of fuck you attitude towards Hollywood. And so he would just take these jobs for the money and he would kind of do whatever he wanted as in the part. I mean, there's some good performances in there, but he would sort of do whatever he wanted. I mean, one of the reasons I think why he wins the Oscar for Godfather is people are just like, thank God he's delivering a good, like he seems to be giving a shit again. Although you talk to people who were on the set of that movie and I don't know how much of a shit he actually gave. But you know, I mean, and it's also true that he had this just persistent mischievous streak. He did not want to be told what to do. And if any anytime he got too comfortable, he'd kind of do some crazy trickster thing. And sometimes that works. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Like, have you ever seen the Missouri Breaks, the Archer yes. 10 movie? Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people hate that movie. I actually love that movie. But Marlon Brando is doing some weird, weird stuff in that movie he and it seems like he's doing whatever he wants but it sort of works because his character is this kind of malevolent trickster so the character is irish and marlon's doing this kind of very thick irish brogue but then the character decides to go undercover as an american and so marlon is doing an irishman pretending to be american accent (laughs) that sort of is convincingly that you know and then he's constantly getting up in weird disguises he dresses up in drag at one point i mean it's a very odd performance in film but there's something really interesting about that um in some ways, I think it's harder for him when he's trying to play more normal people. It reminded me a little bit, I was talking to Patrick McGilligan about um, Jack Nicholson, and he was saying how Jack Nicholson always plays the loser. He couldn't couldn't play Dirty Harry because... He Dirty Harry wins, you know. Right. He he he'd have to not he'd have to not shoot the killer at the end. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, Jack Nicholson is a great example of. I mean, until Batman and the blockbuster era come around and sort of he just is cashing in on being Jack all the time. A truly brilliant method actor. I mean, if you if you want to see what method acting can do, watch Five Easy Pieces, you know, mm-hmm. um, and try to imagine anyone else doing what Jack does in that role. The mysteriousness of that character, his complexity and depth, but how you're never given access to it. Um, that amazing scene at the end with his father, who's actually played by Bill Challey, who is a member of the group. So, you know, that's sort of like the legacy coming around full circle. I mean, it's it's truly incredible. Or um, when he plays Eugene O'Neill in Reds, which I think is one of the great film performances, you know, of all time. There's an incredible depth and complexity that Nicholson is capable of uh, that, you know, for most of the second half of his career, he's not really tapping into. Although there's that late career movie that Sean Penn directed, The Pledge, that he's kind of astounding in, I sort of, I think. I don't know whether that's a good movie or not because I found it so upsetting. I've never watched it again since the first time I saw it, but he's really astounding in it. It's it's a bizarre film because it's so good. Uh, Mickey Rock has a, a very sort of poignant cameo in it as well. Yeah. And I've been I've watched Sean Penn's directing career with a you know aghast at how how he's just slid so far from from the pledge. I I do think the pledge was the high point of his career. The scene in the is it a turkey barn or a chicken barn where there's mm. just I just remember that shot of all the birds gathering around them in this kind of symmetrical frame. Yeah, I should watch that movie again because I remember seeing it and just being blown away, but it's so upsetting. Mm. That movie is mm. so upsetting. I I had wanting to revisit it talking about upsetting this idea of effective memory which i think a lot of people would sort of sort of have as one of their staple ideas of what the method is i mean i guess the popular imagination method acting is dustin hoffman not going to sleep before the marathon man and 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 perhaps if you know a second thing about it then effective act uh, the the idea of remembering a, a key emotional moment in your life in order to reproduce that emotion yeah, I've, totally. I've heard michael kane talk about you know uh, having one in his head that he he uses now nowadays in every single film whether he needs it or not (laughs) 
um, so I mean that effective emotion thing though as you said you know Lee um, Stella Adler uh, hated that idea because she sort of thought it was almost immoral to put an actress or an actor through that that you know repeat repetition of trauma I, I think I don't think it was almost I mean she called it sick yeah right she said it's sick to do the word she used was sick she was like Lee Strasberg is a sick man and this is a sickness and he's asking actors to do this sick thing I mean that's the word that she would use for it so I think she did think it was immoral I think I think the issue was that Lee Strasberg became so central to American acting that a lot of people felt that's what they needed to do and that was the technique that they needed to adopt. And he would say that's what they needed to do and that was the technique they needed to adopt. But the truth of the matter is there are some actors for whom that is incredibly useful and powerful and potent and not crazy making. Do you know what I mean? Like they can use it well. A, a, a perfect example is probably Lee Strasberg's most devoted student, Ellen Burstyn right? You can actually go uh, somewhere on YouTube, there's footage of Lee Strasberg doing an effective memory exercise with Ellen Burstyn. You know, like, she took over the actor studio after he died and ironed it all out. She is one of the great method actors of all time. And she's just like, no, this works for me. You know, this is really powerful. This is how you get to the truth. There are other actors who would tell you only use effective memory as an exercise. You know, um, uh, when I interviewed Estelle Parsons, she said, you know, you use these exercises like if you were playing a musical instrument, you got to clean your musical instrument. That's mm. what it's like. They're clean, or you got to do your scales. You're not going to sit there in a concert and do scales. You know, this is the thing you do to prepare you to do your role. You don't do this during the role. And then there are people who shouldn't do it. Like when I was a student actor, I definitely shouldn't have been doing that stuff that wasn't uh, or, or what I learned through doing it is that it I was it was not going to work well for me Stella Adler I think as, as a very accomplished actor who had been working on stage since she was five was correct in thinking that she personally did not need to do that stuff she could summon emotion at the drop of a hat she just knew how to do it so I really think the problem is is less that the technique exists but that it became a dogma I think that you know, it's great to have a technique there that you can try. And if you don't like it, be like, well, I've got to find some other route to this. But when it became like, no, you have to do this. That's when I think we got into a lot of trouble. Because it's got such a personal cost to it for, for, for many people. And I mean, yeah, I would I would sort of also feel I mean, I was thinking about when Michael I saw Michael Caine do that. I think it might have been inside the actor's studio, the interview uh, TV program. I remember thinking, OK, so it's going to be something like your, your grandma dying or something like that. Doesn't that sort of cheapen a part of your life if you're going, OK, Master Wayne, Master Wayne, you know, Master right. Bruce. I say, I got, I got to summon up someone I love to squeeze a few out for Christopher Nolan now. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think. Well, certainly there are people who did it that feel that way. You know, members of the group would complain that the memory would go stale, mm. or, or if it didn't go stale, that they didn't want to revisit that part of their life eight times a week for six months, you know? Um, one of the members of the group, there would be a memory that she used for one of the shows was, you know, her roommate had been killed and that was the, the memory she was using. And by the end of the show, she was like, I didn't want to think about my, I didn't want to, it, it's less about cheapening the memory so much as like, who wants to be thinking about their dead roommate every night for four months? 
No one, no one wants to do that, you know? And so, um, and, and other people would say, yeah, you know, the problem was that it went stale. But I don't think, I mean, artists use their life and their work all the time. And we have a complicated relationship to that. Uh, certainly other people in their lives don't always like that they're using their <laughs> life for their work, right? <laughs> but that is, a, I mean, you know, most art has some root in the artist's life, whether uh, it's visible to us or not. Mm. Like, did you see Tick, Tick, Boom? Did you see that? Yeah, so, yeah. So do you remember the part where they're breaking up? He and his girlfriend are breaking up and then right. he's thinking about the song he's going to write about their breakup and then them, you know or they're they're they decide not to break up excuse me but he's thinking about the song he's going to make out of their fight and then she's like never mind we are breaking up and she leaves it's uh it's kind of like that you know yeah. and it's one of the reasons why i write non-autobiographical non-fiction i mean there's all sorts of you, you you wouldn't know it from reading that book but there's i'm sure there's all sorts of personal life stuff about me in that book even though i'm not in it at all Oh, I, I I got a feeling. I mean, you mentioned yourself in the introduction, yeah. in in the way you sort of had a personal contact with the method and how you used it in yeah. your working life. But but you know what? It took me a while. That I really resisted doing that in that intro. I really the intro was actually the last part of the book that I wrote. I think part of the reason why it was the last part of the book that I wrote is that I really just didn't want to talk about that shit from my personal life. I just really, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a great, you know, that, that those incidences of being in acting class and being in shows, and I'm not an actor anymore for people who don't know this. I'm a, I'm, I'm a writer and director now, but those experiences actually, I think were really important to frame the book, but I didn't want to give them to you. I didn't want to use them, you know, <laughs> but they turned out being, you know, I think really necessary for giving readers an entry point into the material. Yeah, I, I I think so. I think I think it really worked. It really sort of, um, and it also sort of felt that there was um, something at stake here. You know, this yeah. is, this is a, a, not just sort of some abstract historian looking at this. Uh, and it also gave gave a sense of you know you're qualified to talk about it because you've actually stood on the stage and and had these thoughts and done it yeah yeah but it, that's funny though because everything you're talking about right there those are method values right it was important to feel that something personal of the in this case writer instead of actor was at stake you know they had brought some of themselves into it uh, that they had been open and vulnerable. And that they had sort of proven their bona fides through personal expertise. I mean, that's the method right there. Why, you know, I, I part of me feels like, why do we want that from a book? Well, part of the reason why we want that from a book is because of the method itself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I was thinking as well, as you were speaking, that the you could really um, spread the method out uh, to to all types of artistic endeavor writing directing i mean there are some film directors who you would think well they're pretty method they they do their research they go into the minutiae and they put their their own personal safety on the line you know? <laughs> yeah and a bunch of the great directors of the new hollywood movement actually studied with lee strasberg stella adler or sanford meisner cindy lumet studied with lee strasberg martin ripp was part of the group theater and then part of the actor studio peter bogdanovich very famously studied with stella adler um sam sydney pollock studied with sanford meisner i mean on and on and on there was mm. a there was a big influx of those students arthur penn was in there as well wasn't he as arthur penn? arthur arthur penn eventually became president of the actor studio for a while after lee died yeah arthur penn was a big lee strasberg guy as well the director of Missouri Breaks. Right, the director of, I mean, most people would say director of Bonnie and Clyde or Night Moves, but to you and me, you will always be <laughs> director of Missouri Breaks. Uh, Night Moves is, is, is another great one. I, I do love that yeah. one. I mean, the, the Gene Hackman-Arthur Penn partnership 
mm. produced such great such such uh, such great work. But to to answer your earlier point, there was part of me that wanted to be like, and look, the method is here, and the method is there, and there's the method. Here. But um, you know, the book's already four hundred pages long. <laughs> My mom said that if it was longer than 400 pages, she wouldn't read it. And so, uh, you know, I just couldn't include anything more. I mean, really, it's like, you know, that there was a temptation to really make it huge mm -hmm. and to go into sort of every way that it connects to culture. But eventually I made the decision of like, someone who reads this book is going to know something about 20th century culture. And they're going to have their own epiphanies reading it of like, oh, it's like this or it's like that or whatever. And um, that that's actually going to be part of the fun for the reader of reading the book is, is not me spelling out every connection, but me, sh you know, gesturing at things and then, and then you having your own ideas off of it. That's what I enjoy the most about, you know, reading nonfiction is that sort of bi-directional process of discovery. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to give that to readers. And to, to bring it up to date, and again, to sort of to bring bring back Dustin Hoffman and his Marathon Man story, sort of the, the, the most sort of recent examples we've had of something that would be considered method popularly but again, in your book, you kind of say, well, actually, he's not a method actor. Uh, Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis. You know. Yes. In fact, I have I have a quote from Daniel Day-Lewis in the book where he says, I am not a method actor. I don't use any fixed method actually or something like that. Mm. And that's from when he's trying to do my left foot. So they're like, oh, you're living in a wheelchair for nine months. Is that because you're method? And he says, no, this is a, a practical problem as an actor. How do I look convincingly like someone who's wheelchair bound. So yeah, that, so, you know, by the time Day-Lewis comes around, that's what people think the method is. And I, and I, I think it's largely because of Robert De Niro mm. and largely specifically because of, not entirely because of Raging Bull, but because of, you know, Raging Bull is so influential. People start kind of adopting his methods of in-depth research and full transformation and gaining and losing weight, living as the character, refusing to break character on set, all that stuff, which is hilarious because like Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro was a Stella Adler student who did not like Lee Strasberg very much. So, um, uh, <laughs> did so, Lee yeah, Strasberg so, did Lee Strasberg teach any actors? Yeah, I mean, Lee Strasberg <laughs> taught a lot of actors. I mean, the funny thing is, is like you know, by the time you get to the 1979 Oscars, I think it's 1979 Oscars, nine of the ten nominees are Lee Strasberg students. Right. Right. And the one who wins, who actually is the transitional figure out of the method, is Meryl Streep. She's the one who is not a Lee Strasberg uh, student. But uh, no, Lee Strasberg taught like everyone. I mean, he really did. He taught so many people. He taught great experimental filmmakers like um, William Greaves, who made Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, Shirley Clark, who did Portrait of Jason. You know, he taught, and then he taught very mainstream figures. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild the number of people whose technique he touched. Just happened to not be the primary <laughs> teacher of Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro. Anyway, so um, I think I actually grew to understand, I think, and respect the Day-Lewis type technique a lot more. I imagine it's hard on coworkers. Um, and I think that there's a, you know, particularly in the hands of someone like Jared Leto, it seems to make you kind of insufferable. But if you want to be fully present in the moment and ready to be this character who is very distant from yourself. So you're really transforming yourself to be the character. It's, um, it's hard to turn that on and off when the director calls action, right? And on a film set, I mean, once you're a star the size of 
Daniel Day-Lewis, it's a little bit different, but on a film set, they don't tend to care whether you're ready or not when they call action. It is your job to be ready. And so staying in that state of perpetual readiness is really difficult. And so I understand, and in fact, you know, actors at the actor studio, some of Lee Strasberg's folks at the actor studio started doing that in the 70s. That's where you get Dustin Hoffman staying up for Marathon Man and all that stuff because they couldn't turn it on and off in command. What they're trying to do is too hard. It's too complicated. And so I, I gained some respect for it. I think that it can lead to, it obviously can lead to some problems, you know, uh, but it's, you know, it's also led to some great performances, you know, like, I don't know that I would really enjoy making a movie with late 1970s Robert De Niro too much, but it did also give us Raging Bull, one of the great performances. So, you know, I, I ended up having a far more sympathetic view on that. At the same time, it's gotten so wrapped up in the PR campaigns and the Oscar campaigns for movies um, that it feels that it can feel a little ridiculous and cynical at this point. Mm. I think. Mm. I often think the same thing about uh, whenever there's a war movie, there's always this thing of like, oh, we took them to the basic training and we did this and we did that. And I would like, if I was an actor, I would not want to go through basic training. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I do think, you know, it's interesting because you watch movies. A friend of mine pointed this out. A friend of mine who's a theater critic who also watches a lot of dance. So she is really focused on what bodies are doing. Right. That, um, uh, you know, if you watch a lot of um, uh, movies, you'll see the actors who have gone through that training because they kind of slink through spaces with their bodies turned um this is not a video podcast so that's not going to read with their bodies turned 180 degrees the way that like a special forces person would while holding a a, a some sort of machine gun i don't know anything about weapons so you know you can see because it actually has affected the way they move through space whether they're supposed to be in a military movie or not you know like everyone mm. knows how to do that the thing is is that you know if you're going to be in a world war one film that's not the training you you know you need you know i don't want to go live in a trench but you do have to figure out how to believably seem like you've been living in a trench for a few months mm. or whatever right um, and, and figuring out how to do that is, I think, tricky, but there's other ways to do it. You could look at photo. I mean, Stella Adler would tell you, look at a photograph from the trenches and mimic the physicality. Try that physical pose on. Read everything you can about World War One. If your character's based on a real person, read about, you know, read about the battles they're in you know, educate yourself, go and look at paintings of people during the time period, read diaries, just try to get yourself into that world, into the given circumstances is the term of the, of the, of the world as possible. And I don't think you need to go through basic training to do all of that, frankly. So where do you see acting now in terms of, I mean, it, the method, is it, is it still, I mean, it's still obviously influential, but is it still the reigning idea or do you think that, that it's been superseded? I don't know that we have a reigning idea now. Right. I mean, uh, for a bunch of different reasons, but it's certainly not the method. If we have one, it's not the method. I mean, what happens in the 80s and 90s is all of the original American teachers of, of Stanislavski technique die, right? Still, At the least, same time? Yeah, yeah, they, they all- were, it's, They're it's in like, a bus? It's like the day that music died. It's, uh, you know, uh, they were in that plane with- um, <laughs> Buddy Holly you know, and Richie Valance. Buddy Holly and Richie Valance. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, uh, um, but over the course of those 20 years, they all die. You know, Lee Strasberg was born in uh, 1901, you know, and he dies in 1982. Harold Clerman dies in 1980. Stella Adler, uh, Sanford Meisner die in the 90s. You know, it's, it's really the end of the era. 
And part of these techniques, the part that's not transferable is that um, these were all like kind of charismatic geniuses with, with idiosyncratic eyes, you know, but very, and also a very precise vision for BS. And that's not replaceable. Um, you can teach their techniques and there's many great teachers, their techniques. I'm not putting those people down, but the, but they also aren't the kind of charismatic, like I'm the founder, I'm the master. I built this thing. You know, I'm a legend that aura that surrounds them. No one has that. Ever. And so also the super blockbuster emerges in the eighties, you know, in international audience, international big budget audiences have a big effect on movie making. And so what the industry wants from actors changes a bit. And so you sort of enter this period where there's actually an astounding diversity of technique and approach and results. So, you know, in the eighties, you have the Brat Pack and you have Nicolas Cage, but you also have Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and Meryl Streep. But, you know, you have this, like, there's a lot going on. I think we still have that to some extent. I think that the um, the Juilliard school and its approach, which is really a marriage of classical European technique and American method technique, has proven remarkably durable. You know, mm -hmm. um, I mean, of, of who are the two you know great actors around the age of male actors around the age of forty? It's Oscar Isaac and Adam Driver, right? They both came from Juilliard. Jessica Chastain came from Juilliard, stuff like that. And so I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. I think we live in. An an era where there's like lots of different ways to be a good actor and I think for the most part that's good I do think the part of the method that remains dominant um, but even that's starting to fade is what we want from an acting performance you know is mm. the feeling that we want truth we want to believe that this person is actually playing their character you know that the character is a real person mm. and we want that 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 sense of artistic truth that is a is a is a big change that the method brought in as well as the kind of dominance of of realism you know but the other thing that's going on right now which worries me i'll be honest is um i do feel like because of the need to hold on to people's attention in the streaming era that dramatic writing is getting a lot simpler and a lot clearer and it thus requires less complicated acting on top of it and that our dramatic art is maybe getting a little a little too clear i don't want to use the word shallow that sounds more judgmental than i mean it to be mm. but like you know the idea that human beings are complicated and you they don't always understand themselves and they don't always can't always be understood and they're not all good and they're not all bad. And, you know, like those sort of core humanistic beliefs, I feel like are, we're, are getting a little bit lost as we become, because, because they require you to watch closely. Can you give us an example of that? Can you give us like a, an epitome of that? Or an, uh, an epitome of, of which thing? The clearer example? Or yeah, the, the clear example. The, well, I the, mean, an obvious example is just blockbuster filmmaking in general, right? right. Like you don't want, I mean, Mark Ruffalo, was, was studied with Stella Adler and is a big Stella Adler fan, but you don't want Mark Ruffalo giving the performance he gives in You Can Count on Me as Bruce Banner, right? I mean, like right. that would be ridiculous. So, you know, um, if you, and the blockbuster movies have taken over so much. I mean, last year, there isn't a single blockbuster film that crossed the 50 million mark at the box office in the United States, if I remember correctly, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's wild. And then when you move into TV, you know, it's not like, I'm trying to think of, a, of something that I liked, 
but that I didn't think, you know, um, but at the same time, you know, if you watch like Haunting of Hill House or whatever, it's not like those are really complicated characters or, you know, mm. you know most streaming shows, they just, they, that's not what they need. They need something else. They're, they're looking for um, what in, in fiction writing, in prose writing, we call flat characters. I don't mean that judgmentally. I just mean the characters are less complicated because the focus is on plot and action. Sure. Right. Sure. And that's fine. Like I love like, you know, um, most characters in thrillers, you know, in, in mystery novels or whatever. I read a lot of science fiction. Most science fiction characters are a little flatter than those of realistic characters. So it's not that I'm opposed to that kind of characterization. I just worry that that's becoming increasingly the norm in such a way that um, we place less demand on the character and thus less demand on the actor. And there's a certain richness of the human experience that's falling by the wayside as a result. I'm re-watching The Sopranos at the moment. And, you know, not only obviously James Gand Gandolfini is unbelievable in that, but the whole cast, I mean, you go yes. back to that Stanislavski idea of having nobody is a, an attendant lord or a spear carrier. Right. You know, it doesn't matter if you're Dante, Silvio, Dante, or you're Pauli, or you're Junior, or everybody is bringing their A, a game, there, including Peter Bogdanovich, of course. Including Peter, Bog Peter Bogdanovich as uh, Elliot, right? My yeah. mom always says, Elliot, I love the eyebrows. I love Peter Bogdanovich's eyebrows. Yeah, I mean... You know, that's a perfect example, actually, that, you know, that is a show, not everyone can be the protagonist, right? So that is a show that has some of flatter characters, uh, characters who are not as rich and complicated as Tony or Carmela or Junior or um, Nancy Marchand's character, the mom and uh, Lydia and, uh, and stuff like that. But even they are sort of bringing the fullness of themselves to those roles. You could just watch Polly Walnuts do his thing. <laughs> Just for, nice. with with his with his with his white streaks of hair and uh doesn't he have the car horn that's the Godfather theme? Is he the one whose car horn is the <laughs> yeah, Godfather I theme? So. I, I just you're look gonna up. have to eat me, Paulie. You're gonna have to eat me. I just I, uh yeah. I even love on rewatching it. And this isn't necessarily a good example of great acting, but AJ just make he's so. Um, the, the, uh, Tony's son, Anthony Jr. He's such a dumb kid. He's just such an asshole. And he's just yeah. so, oh, he's so reliable to ev always get everything wrong. Um, um, the, the line of his, I think of from the first season is when he just goes, would you just shut the fuck up? And they're all like, oh, it's the dinner table. <laughs> um, but you know, The Sopranos, this is a perfect example to me actually, because you know, The Sopranos gives birth to Mad Men. And Mad Men is similarly filled with endlessly complicated, interesting characters who can surprise you. Whether you like the show or not, it, it has that, right? Yeah, has, and, yeah. and, you know, the closest equivalent to Mad Men we have today is Succession, which is a show I love. Don't get me wrong. Like, Succession is a show I love. But most of those characters have one thing that they're doing in every single scene. And they're doing mm. the same thing in every scene. I mean, Brian mm. Cox's character has a catchphrase. Mm. you know fuck off it's his catchphrase mm. no one in bat you know so so in that fits that genre because succession is more satirical than those other ones it comes out of a mm. british tradition a shavian tradition you know mm. it's not coming out of the american realist tradition but at the same time you know it's it, it the characters are are purposely i think 
a little thinner, a little flatter, a little, I'm doing the same thing in every scene and then we're reconfiguring it over and over. And that's over the again. joke. That's, isn't, that's the absolute joke of it yeah, because it, it's, it, it tricks everybody into thinking this has got to be deeper. One of these characters has got to have some sort of hidden depth to them. And right. by the end of the first season, it's like, oh, fuck, they're all, they're all yeah. assholes. <laughs> right, exactly. And I, and I, I want to say this again, I'm not criticizing Succession but that because it's a show that I think is very successful at what it's doing. But that's an example of of this shift that I'm talking about. Right, right. This shift towards a kind of clarity. I mean, to me, the there, you know, the two, one or two mysterious characters, mysterious, complicated, more psychologically realistic characters are, of course, on succession are, of course, um, uh, Kendall, right? You know, Jer- Jeremy Strong's part. McFadden's character, uh, Tom, right? Who, you know, and at first you think he's similarly to them kind of just going to do the same thing in every scene. And then he builds out particularly in the third season, this kind of rich complexity. But, you know, so it's not that I want everything to be acted like a new Hollywood film. I don't want everything to be five easy pieces. I just hope that as a culture, we're still holding on to that idea, that idea of what a human being can be and, and, and things like that. And uh, funnily enough, actually, that New Yorker piece about Jeremy Strong seemed to be expressing a kind of real impatience with the, with the method or with that version of the method. Certainly people in that, that article do. I mean, I, I should say I, I uh, know Michael who wrote that, that mm. piece and I, he and I had a little phone call while he was writing it just to, you know, he was like, am I getting this terminology right? You know? Uh, and so I did have a little bit of a preview of it. I, I think it's, you know, Michael, I know because he's, he said it both publicly and privately and it's in the article has an unbelievable admiration for what strong accomplishes. Mm. And I think that, you know, he is doing things on that show that not every actor can do, you know? Mm. Um, That scene in the gravel driveway in the finale of season three Mm. is a perfect example of someone living absolutely in the truth of the moment. And it, you know, even though Strong is not a method actor, doesn't do emotional, doesn't do effective memory exercises and is against them and stuff like that. It's that clear sign of what Strasberg was talking about, which is um, if the actor is really feeling what's going on, they're going to express that emotion in unconventional ways. The way to get Mm. away from cliche is to use how you really do these things because how you really do these things is particular. And so that gravel driveway scene is a perfect example of that, that he's truly in the moment. It's real truth. It seems to have this profound effect on the actors he's working with. They're better in that scene than they usually are, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And then the, but the dialectic of that article is like, does he have to be this preposterous a person to get this result? Mm. And, you know, it bounces these two ideas off each other in a way that I think is really rich and powerful. Clearly, lots of people like Adam McKay, among other people, and Aaron Sorkin took that article to be a takedown. I don't actually think that article is a takedown. I think that article is great admiration for him. And it, but it is also has a very complex, like this guy is very like, I don't understand this person, you know, at the same time. But certainly it seems like his castmates find him insufferable. That was the sense that I got from that, from the succession interviews. Yeah. And sort of Brian, Brian Cox, I've just read his autobiography and he's, uh, I mean, he's, he's very, very, yeah, yeah, no, I like Jeremy. I like what he does, but I, I do, I do it differently. Listen, yeah. let's, let's, I, I got to ask you a final question. It's been, I, I, I've gone on a bit longer than I, I um, 
than I intended because I know you 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 want to be going for dinner with your grad students now. <laughs> Soon, yeah, I've got to go teach a class. I got this. Oh my the god! Thing I do. Um, well, I'm I just studies class, so this will be good. This will be good prep. Yeah, just warm, warming you up. I want to ask you for a book recommendation, a film book recommendation that you would give because we this is the podcast is writers on film, so we're we're trying to promote as many as we can. Oh man, there are so many. Okay, I'm gonna try to think of one that hasn't been recommended on this before, right? Okay. Like normally you'd be like, oh, pictures at a revolution, but someone's recommended pictures at a revolution. You've had right? four people reference. Okay, what about and, and, we've, and we've had Mark Harris on as well. So he's Mark saying, is so great. He was so helpful to me for the book because he. Had was he was researching the Mike Nichols bio at the same time right and he also blurbed the method and I, I he's just a great guy okay I'm going to think of some other ones here movie made America has no, anyone recommended no, movie nobody's, made America nobody's. okay uh, movie made America is uh uh hold on I'm, I'm looking it up here I want to make sure I get the yeah so movie made America by Robert Sklar S-K-L-A-R who also wrote um didn't he also write the genius of the system anyway um Movie Made America, absolutely, they don't make books like this anymore. <laughs> it is a general reader, one volume, 400 page cultural history of the movies. Wow. Starts with the silence, goes up to the end of the 20th century. If you are, if you just want to get immediately deeper, a deeper understanding of the arc of American cinema, you know, in an easy way by someone who's an absolute authority on all this stuff, but still is able to present it readably. Movie Made America is, I think, the uh, is the place to start. Robert Sklar. I mean, there's lots of books you can break off about individual movies or eras or, um, you know, what's that series where they do the big, they do the big book that's about all the movies of that decade. Uh, and they have an amazing one about the 70s. Oh, shoot. I'll, I'll, yeah. Maybe it's Cambridge does them. I don't remember, but they have these amazing, there's, you know, there's, there's stuff you can do out there if you want to specialize in. Sure. You know, the studio era or the silent era or whatever. But if you want the whole arc of it in a readable way that will then point you in a bunch of directions if you want to go deeper, you know, um, that's the great place to start. Movie Made America by Robert Sklar. I'm just going to ask you for a bonus one. John Garfield biography, because uh, you whetted my appetite for some John Garfield. Yes, absolutely. Uh, hold, hold, on, uh, hold on one sec. Let me uh, uh, let me find the author. I can never remember the mm. author. Um, the the one that I read that I found you know very useful uh, and and good in is by a guy named Robert Knott N O T T and it is called He Ran All the Way: The Life of John Garfield. Oh. Uh, it's it's a it's it's really good. It's really good. Um, uh, he really did his work. He really did his research and 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 went went deep on it. It's also unlike most biographies. You know, it's not a doorstop. It's like three to four hundred pages long. It's very accessible. You know, he but he really gets he really gets the story down. Super brilliant. I'm going to put that on my list straight away. Listen, great. Isaac, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, it's been it's such a pleasure. It's been great fun. Thank you. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Isaac. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I had a great time. I learned a lot from his book. It comes highly recommended. His other recommended books were Movie Made America, A Cultural History of American Movies, which uh, is written by Robert Sklar, S-K-L-A-R. He also recommended, on my insistence, uh, He Ran All the Way, The Life of John Garfield by Robert Knott, N-O-T-T. -T. 
and uh, we were talking about a series of books, and I was completely baffled. I don't like googling things while I'm doing the podcast because you can hear me tapping away on the on the key keyboards, and, and we'll uh, and we'll no doubt guess what I'm doing. But the movies of the '70s, the series he was talking about, I think, are the Tashian books, and the movies of the '70s uh, is by Jürgen Müller and has a, a picture of Clockwork Orange on the cover. Thanks very much to Isaac Butler for giving me the time. I also want to thank Elia Atkins for the music, Ali Harwood for the art, and of course, I want to thank all of you for listening and for supporting this podcast. It really means so much to me, and it really keeps me going. So uh, please continue, and uh, I'll see you next week. 